0: Hey, everyone, I'm David Nesbitt, Content Marketing Manager at Incognia. Thanks for joining us again on the Trust and Safety Mavericks podcast. On this episode of the show, Incognia's CEO, Andre Faraz, talks with Julie Conroy, Chief Insights Officer at Datos Insights, and Fraud Prevention Expert, Lenny Gusell from Gusell Advisory. Their conversation focuses on the growing use of faster payments and how this is opening the door for fast fraud. They discuss how financial institutions have to find ways to detect and stop this fraud more quickly than ever before. In the show, they cover topics like reimbursement changes around faster payments fraud, the growing importance of mule detection, takeaways from the launch of Brazil's real-time payment service Pix, and how location intelligence can help in the fight against faster payments fraud. Let's jump in. Before we jump into our content, let's learn a little bit about our speakers
1: today. Uh, so Andre, would you mind kicking us off by introducing yourself for the audience? Hi, everybody. I'm Andre Frass, CEO and co-founder at Incognia. Uh, have been working with particularly geolocation technologies and device and security for over 10 years now. Excited to be here and uh, to hear what Julian and Lenny have to share about uh, real-time payments as well.
2: This is Julie Conroy. I'm the Chief Insights Officer at Datos Insights. Uh, Many of you may formerly know know us as IT Novarica Group. I've been here for 13 years, and like all of the advisors here, we all come from industry. So prior to my time leading the advisory team here at Datos, I managed the product management function at Early Warning Services for many years. And and prior to that, I was with the uh, top 20 U.S. credit card issuer managing a bunch of their payment processes and risk controls. I'll turn it over to Lenny.
3: Hi, everybody. My name is Lenny Gasell. Been doing strategic advisory for uh, a while now, both uh, with banking and operator side, as well as with vendors to the the fraud and financial crime industry. And prior to that, have held uh, leadership roles running fraud and trust and safety teams, the likes of uh, Robinhood most recently, and before that, spent uh, a number of years at Chase building uh, some of their platforms for fraud, identity, and authentication, and prior to that, Bank of America. Been in this space for, gosh, almost 20 years and have, um, was actually in the UK when uh, the UK converted to faster payments circa 2008. And um, fascinated by all the things happening here in the United States and following some of the similar parallels and excited to be in this webinar with you guys. Thanks so much, Lenny.
0: So without further ado, obviously, we have a lot of great expertise here on the session. So let's get started with our content. And Julie, could you start us off by sharing some context about the landscape of faster payment rails today?
2: Sure. So if we look at the next slide here, you know, we've we've been talking faster payments now for, for going on just over 15 years. And the UK is, is so often is on the vanguard of things related to payments evolution risk evolution that goes, goes along with it. So they launched the, their first set of pa- faster payment rails back in 2008, you know, by 2021, fully 39% of all of UK payments were fully 39% of all B2B UK payments were going over faster payment rails. Um, by the end of the first quarter of this year, we saw that 1.1 billion payments in the UK were faster payments, with that represented a 16% year-over-year year growth. So they, there continues to be this expansion of awareness, this expansion of use cases, this ex- expansion of recognition that uh, faster payments has a ton of utility for consumers and businesses. But you know, unfortunately, the flip side of that is that it also has a ton of utility for, for fraudsters. You know, we we did a study earlier this year, and we're going to be sharing a lot of data as we go along, where we interviewed banks across. A number of geos, and, and among them are the the flags that you see on the screen: the UK, India, the US, Brazil. Uh, it's this by no means is the faster payments universe. There's now over 60 countries that have embraced faster payment rails, and yeah, as we'll talk about a little bit further along, you know, as fraudsters who recognize the opportunity for fraud across faster payments, and as they have really honed their attack vectors and their tactics in early adopter markets like the UK, we're seeing that they're they're doing this rinse and repeat across the, the geos and the banks and the consumers that, that subsequently adopt. India has seen great success with its faster payment rails. It, it launched the UPI in 2016. By Q1 of 2022, the UPI enabled 64% of all e-commerce payments, which I think that's just an amazing statistic in such a very short period of time, and 31% of the payment volume. Yeah, you know, the U.S., you know, we, we've always got to do things a little bit differently here in the U.S., and so we, we don't have one, but we have two faster payment rails, free if you count Zelle, but you know, as, as most people on this call probably know, Zelle is really the consumer-facing brand, and the actual settlement behind the scenes happens either via ACH or via RTP. Zelle and RTP Rails both launched in 2017, and this year we've seen the uh, official July launch of FedNow with well over 100 banks going live in July on the FedNow Rails. As of 2022, we were seeing 2.3 billion Zelle payments a year, same year, we saw 1.8 billion RTP payments representing 12% of U.S. volume. And then I think PIX is a super interesting story. And Andre is going to give us a lot of great color on PIX because he has a ton of expertise with those rails. You know, They launched just in November of 2020. Within one year, so by November of 2021, PIX volume eclipsed card payment volume in the Brazilian market. You know, 2022, they saw 29.2 billion transactions. One of the brilliant things that the operator of PIX, the, the Brazilian Central Bank, did was you know, in November 2020, we were still in the middle of a pandemic, and they started issuing stimulus payments across the PIX rails to consumers to generate immediate adoption. They also created a mandate that any Brazilian bank with more than 500,000 accounts had to enable PIX. And so that's those are two factors in just the kind of rocket ship launch that we've seen of PIX adoption in Brazil. Anything to add to this, Lenny or or Andre, before we move on to the next slide?
1: Maybe I could comment shortly here about the PIX experience because it was right in the year that I was uh, moving from Brazil to the U.S. So I moved in uh, February of 2020 to start building in Cognito. And it was interesting because what really changed when Pigs was launched was not exactly the real-time aspect of it because we were already used to real-time, almost real-time payments for a long time. Since I started banking, we had another system called TED uh, that enabled payments that would settle in like three seconds. So it was near real-time. But the difference here was that you had to pay like converting to US dollars. it, It was about like, 3 to $4 per transaction. So the adoption wasn't that high. And one of the big changes that PIX brought to the market was they eliminated all the fees. It became free to send money instantly from one bank to the other. And that exploded very quickly. So I think one of the aspects that made the adoption also move very quickly was the fact that people were already used to seeing payments settle almost in real time. So there wasn't a a very significant change. It was basically the the central bank coming to everybody and saying like, hey, now this is free, you know, and, and, and people started using it for everything. I didn't use it when it was launched because I was here and, and I, I was stuck because of the, the pandemic, I couldn't travel. But I, I was shocked when I went back to Brazil to visit my family and I went to the beach and people were like selling coconut water and saying, oh yeah, I, I'm not accepting cash anymore. Do you have a mobile phone so you can send me a PICS? And I was like, wow, this this really changed very quickly. I, I only spent like a year out of this country and 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 it has completely transformed.
2: That's fascinating. David, if if we move on to uh, the next slide, as I mentioned, you know, the, the US does everything a little bit differently. And yeah, you know, the latest entrant to the, the faster payment rails is FedNow. Um and we're we're seeing as you look at the that hundred plus banks that were in that first tranche in, in July, it's 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 Financial institutions of all sizes. So it's yeah, you know, if you look down the list, and it's a public list on the Federal Reserve site. It's you know small community banks and credit unions, regional banks, national banks, and so you, you've got this confluence of banks versus RTP, which that tends to be a little bit more concentrated at the the larger banks in the U.S. market. Um, if we look at the next slide, David, you know we'll see that uh, as you look at how fraudsters are capitalizing on the faster payments, faster fraud opportunity, which it's, it's cliche, but it's, it's true. There, there's two types of faster payment fraud. And it's really important to differentiate that. And we'll be doing that throughout this conversation because you've got authorized payments fraud, which is commonly known as scams, where the bank's genuine customer is socially engineered or duped into voluntarily sending money to the fraudster's account. You also have the unauthorized fraud, which typically manifests as account takeover. And the unauthorized is, is the fraud vector that we have been dealing with since, since digital banking began. It, it really became industrialized and, and a massive problem in the early 2010 decade. And I think one of the reasons why authorized payment fraud or scans are so problematic and so top of mind for financial institutions, you know, this is Among the top two questions that we get from our financial institution clients at Datos is, you know, what are best practices in dealing with authorized payment fraud? Is because over the past 15 years, financial institutions have architected their digital channel fraud control framework around detecting that unauthorized activity and, and turning that on a 180 and determining what the intent behind your genuine consumer voluntarily sending money out of their own account is is really, really hard. And Lenny, I know you were instrumental in developing a lot of the, especially the unauthorized control frameworks. So I'd love to hear your perspective.
3: Yeah, what's fascinating to me is there's, as we've seen faster payment rails going across the world, there were certainly a lot of folks who predicted that there was going to be a rise in an uh, authorized payment fraud. And the simple reason for that prediction was that the weakest link in all of our control frameworks and all of our systems is, are the, the human beings. And we saw a fairly rapid rise uh, from, to, you know, back, circa back in 2008, when the UK converted to, to faster payments as an entire country, we saw a fairly rapid rise in this authorized payment fraud where, as Julie, as you were saying, we had 20, almost 30 years across the globe to put in a lot of different controls and lots of different processes and policies, procedures, and so on for how we were going to dealing with people's accounts, uh, online accounts, you know, and then uh, uh, online credentials being taken over and bad guys getting into our online banking accounts and sending money. But he, the watching the actual response of fraudsters and how quickly they have taken advantage of faster payments using that weakest link, the human being, and effectively duping, you know, tricking, scamming people into sending money in all kinds of ways is amazing to see the, how fast it is. Now, just to, to get a sense of it, in the United States, again, we, we're we still in the beginning stages of rolling out the actual real-time settlement, RTP and FedNow. But f- from the fraud perspective, Zelle has been a very enticing target, as have other been PTP rails, but in the, in the banking sector predominantly. We are at a point already where about half, if not more, of the banking payment fraud in the United States is authorized as opposed to kind of the ATO, unauthorized. If you look at the UK, my sense is from conversations I've been having, it's at 80%. And what's even more fascinating is that even in the unauthorized category, the, a large portion of that unauthorized, i.e. A, a bad guy figures out how to get your password and whatever other credentials get into your account. The last leg of that is people being convinced or duped into giving away their SMS codes or to, you know, sending the push notification on their mobile app. It is a kind of a form of the customer doing it themselves, even in the unauthorized space. And so what we're dealing with, Julie, to your point of how do you actually discern who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? And then, how do we deal with this entire ecosystem of payments being sent across institutions into bad accounts, which we're going to talk about? I know in the in the, in the upcoming slides. And this entire ecosystem of fraud that has evolved, given the the faster payments rails, is a real challenge.
2: It absolutely is. And then you 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 add liability to the mix, <laughs> which uh, you know traditionally for unauthorized, and that has. Uh, been in most GEOs, North America is, is no exception. That has been um, the bank's liability. Authorized, historically, has been customer liability, but we're seeing that shift rapidly. And you know, the, the UK, once again, on the forefront, you know, October 2024, for most forms of authorized payment fraud, it will be shared liability between the sending and receiving bank. And all eyes are on the UK globally. And we're already seeing a number of jurisdictions contemplating following suit. Here in the US, you know, there are a small subset of scam types, mostly bank impersonation types, a set of circumstances where the bank now holds liability as of September of this year. And as as we talk to Dato's financial institution clients, they're, they're already painfully starting to see that. As we talk about authorized payment fraud or scams, one of the other challenges to an already challenging attack vector is that not all scams are created equal. And so as you're kind of figuring out your detection strategies, as you're figuring out your talk-off strategies to actually convince your customer not to send this payment because they are being victimized, you know, there, there's so many different types and they have different time frames. You know, you've got your grandparent scam where your grandson is in jail and you need to send bail money and it has to be now and it's it, there's there's a lot of urgency and the, the one commonality with all of these scams is they're really tapping into and pulling emotional levers and unfortunately these scam rings are very good at doing this you know the the dating scam the romance scam this they they're going for the long game it's kind of the other end of the spectrum from the grandparent scam where it's it's a quick one you're creating urgency the dating scam—you know—you're engaging somebody over weeks or months to suck them in. Oftentimes, it has a, you know, crypto investment component to it. So you know, it's, it's often known as, as pig butchering when it's got that component. And as I talk to so many of our clients, where you know they do detect some anomalous b- indicators, but then you know, convincing this person that this, you know, person that they're emotionally invested in it's actually a scammer, is incredibly challenging to do. So that just adds to the the further complexity of the scam ecosystem.
3: If I can jump in here, what we need to understand is probably far and away the most difficult thing for our financial institutions to deal with. And then this arena is, Julie, as you started saying, is what is the treatment? So, we can assume that there is going to be various ways of we c- of detecting possibility that a payment is at risk of some kind of a scam without even necessarily knowing what kind. But then coming to an actual targeted and specific approach for how to treat it and what to actually do. How do you, as you said, Julie, how, how do you actually have that customer understand that, that they're being manipulated and that they should not send that payment Broadly speaking, I found it helpful for for folks to think about as short-term versus long-term. And that is very, very high level. And I think many financial institutions across the globe are starting to get very specific for a potential type of scam and how to then do the treatment. But the kind of the short-term being, it's a kind of imposter or grandparent scam or someone telling you that they're from the IRS or from the bank, and you under immediate pressure to send something as opposed to the long-term, where you've had months and months and months of someone convincing you that you are in a deep relationship of some kind, whether it's an investment Mm -hmm. relationship, friendship, or a romance scam, those are significantly more difficult to to have the the customer recognize what's going on. And so broadly speaking, even just distinguishing between those two kind of long-term and short-term scams has been very, very helpful, but all of it gears towards how do we as an industry start to determine Understanding not just intent, but understanding the background and the context of what is this payment about and why, and how to communicate with the user in a real-time scenario for trying to determine how to treat any particular payment at risk is possibly one of the most complicated things we need to do.
1: Absolutely. Another thing I would add here is that one of the, the complexities is that these things are happening off the platform, right? So, like, they're communicating via text message, social media, phone calls. The financial institution doesn't have visibility into that, right? They It only has visibility into, like, who's logging in, which device is logging into this account, and who is it sending money to, right? So, it's very hard to monitor what's going on behind the scenes because it could be a legitimate payment. It could be a real relationship. But it's very hard to observe what's going on behind the scenes. So that adds to the complexity of fighting this.
2: Without question. And I love seeing in, in the UK market and Australia, as we're looking at some of the emerging kind of mechanisms that are being driven by the, the regulators in those countries, that you know, the social media platforms and, and the telecoms are being pulled into the mix because they are absolutely an instrumental part of, of this ecosystem. If we move to the next slide, I know we've got a lot to get through and we're almost halfway through already. So yeah, as we look at some of the research that we've done at Datos on, on this front, you know, from the study that we did earlier this year, where we interviewed banks across US, UK, Canada, Brazil, and India, one of the questions we asked the, the financial institutions we spoke with was, you know, as you look at the trend associated with various types of payment fraud, comparing 2022 attack vectors to those in 2021, yeah, as you can see from this data, you know those attack vectors leveraging real-time payment rails are rapidly increasing, and you know Mule activity using real-time payment rails is absolutely leading the way. You know, up for the majority of institutions, fifty-seven percent, more than ten percent for fifty-seven percent of the institutions. You know, we're also seeing that consumer ATO using real-time payment rails is up for a, a huge chunk. Of institutions, 62%. And then as you look at things like the APP using real-time payments, again, up for for more than half of the institutions that we surveyed. And so the the faster payments, faster fraud adage really does hold true, unfortunately. As we go to the next slide, you know, we'll see that scan risk is really what's keeping people up at night. So, this actually is data that we haven't even published yet. This is one of the first groups that gets that's going to be seeing this data. But as we ask financial institutions, you know, thinking about your control framework and your financial institution's ability to adequately detect attacks and prevent losses, you know, what's what two types of fraud are you most concerned about this year? And as you can see here, by a significant margin, it is those consumer scam attacks. And I think it's that perfect storm that we see where. You know, fraudsters, the organized crime rings, they're they're doing the rinse and repeat. They have a very well established attack set of attack vectors that they have tried and really honed in the UK market. They're expanding globally. Our control frameworks are nascent. They're really not yet designed to adequately detect or prevent. And then you add the the third leg of the storm, which is the liability shifts that we're seeing springing up or, or the threats of liability shift. And, you know, I, I think that is why, you know, this is something that keeps people up at night. Lenny, Andre, anything to add to that?
3: I'm going to add a fourth leg to the uh, because it's the perfect storm, Julie, which is the operational complexity and cost associated with managing, whether the kind of certainly the in the area of liability shift shifting, but however liability much however much it shifts or doesn't shift, already there is such a huge operational overhead for how to deal with uh, those customers' conversations, those those treatments, both customers and fraudsters calling into the call center in order to deal with all of those alerts and cases and so forth. How to tag them, how to mark them, how to resolve them. It is a, a big part of one of the of why everyone's up at night.
2: That is such a good point, and it's not just the customer-facing operational aspect As I've talked to a bunch of our financial institution clients in the U.S. market in just the two months since we've had that liability shift for a very small subset of Zelle transactions, they said that the operational overhead of just figuring out who has liability has been massively painful. And so it's the internal just liability assignment stuff as well that is taking tons of cycles.
3: Yeah, and on that, I'll say that probably kind of foreshadowing, I, I believe, it's something that you have on slides coming up is how are sending and receiving institutions collaborating and sharing data in this entire environment in order to figure that out, and in order to actually then process and go through a, a set of pre- prescribed policies, procedures, and workflows for how they're actually going to do that. It's a we're we're at the beginning of a of a couple of decades worth of of uh, making this work across our financial ecosystem.
2: Yeah, you know the the collaboration piece. We'll speak to that in a little bit. That's where I think we've got enormous untapped opportunity, and we haven't even begun to scratch the surface there. Unfortunately, I think the other massive challenge with scams is we've got a, a consumer population that thinks that they will know a scam if they see it, and you know this. We've got a couple of bits of consumer data. The the piece that we put in here was just around education. So a number of institutions, as we'll see in, in future slides, you know, one of the things they're spending money on to combat scams is educating consumers. And I think you could say that virtually every financial institution in North America is doing something to educate their consumers about scams. It's statement stuffers, it's things on the mobile app, it is pop-ups on the website. I know from my institutions, I get actually some pretty good emails, but I pay attention to them because I'm in the space. You know, as we survey consumers, when we ask consumers, has your financial institution ever tried to educate you about scams? As you can see from this this chart, only one in four consumers think that their primary bank or credit union have tried to educate them about this, which shows that the challenge associated with consumer education is just trying to figure out, how you can get it to sink in. Once again, I think the UK is a poster child for, for doing some, some stuff right on this front. They they I just got back from London this morning, actually. And they have some really edgy and you know humor laden uh, education campaigns that you know they put on on the telly, they put on the in the tubes to to really kind of break through and get consumers attention. I think in too many markets, we're still kind of seeing a white glove approach where you don't want to scare consumers. And, you know, it's it's very tentative. And that's where one in four consumers really have even registered seeing it at this point. The other bit of data from the same consumer survey was we asked consumers about if somebody tried to scam you, would you know it if you saw it? And, and like 75 to 80% of consumers were very confident they'd know it. But then later in the survey, as we, we'd asked if they had ever fallen for a scam, over one in three had fallen for one, so it <laughs> it shows that cognitive dissonance there in the consumer base. The other thing that I think is a work in progress in so many geos right now is just the the policy for reimbursing scam victims. You know, this particular data set came from a survey that we did in, in late 2022 where we asked about a firm's policy for reimbursing consumer scam victims. And as you can see, you know there was quite a wide variety in terms of firms that reimburse very little, firms that take a case by case approach, firms that you know, are, are reimbursing a good chunk of things. And I think you know, the the two very interesting things about this data set for me were we asked a similar question in a study that we did just a year prior to this one. And at that time, at the end of 2021 in North America, very few firms, very few financial institutions were reimbursing for anything over 10 to 20% of consumer scams. And so you can see kind of the the big jump we made in a year. And that was really when the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in the U.S. started making a lot of noise via guidelines, via public statements about, you know, they were keeping an eye on this potential liability shifts. And. Financial institutions started taking a second look at their their policies. The other thing, though, is you look at kind of just the the selective process, and you you don't necessarily have a cookie cutter decision making process to determine who gets reimbursed and who doesn't. That actually plays into some of the regulatory jeopardy right there, because if you're, you know, saying Lenny gets reimbursed but Andre doesn't, you know why is that? Is that fair? Is that equitable? And so I think all of this is something that the ecosystems are grappling with as we still have a lot of gray area in many geos about, about consumer reimbursement for scams.
3: And and I'll say, this is also one of the things that is feeding and fueling the rise in first party fraud with reimbursement means money and the the fraudsters are are very clearly aware of that. And so... I've heard estimates of the volume of reported fraud, uh, reported scams, uh, and how much they're rising, and don't quote me on these numbers, but it's 40, 50, 60, sometimes 80% in terms of an increase in volume in consumer-reported fraud, the vast majority of that consumer-reported scams, and again, the operational overhead of being of having to determine which of those are actually really good customers who have been scammed and which of them are first-party fraudsters who are taking advantage of the liability shift and the entire reimbursement schemes that are being put in place?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, when the UK saw its con- first contingent liability shift in 2019, where a good chunk of consumer scams got shifted to the, the FIs, you know, as, as my team and I talked to the, the heads of fraud at those banks, you know, they immediately saw a spike in first-party fraud. And you know, over the past... 18 months to two years, we've seen a number of US financial institutions publicly come out and say that they're going to start reimbursing bank impersonation scams. And, and overnight they saw, you know, not only increases in first party fraud and, and you know bank impersonation scam claims, but you can also find the YouTube videos out there that are training people as to what to say and how to do it. So it's yeah, the, the, the first party fraud piece of this is is one that will absolutely jump as, as the liability shifts take place as well. So I'm gonna turn it over to Andre to show, share some more great insights from pics in Brazil.
1: Yeah, so here in this slide, basically uh, it reinforces this point that uh, the, the liability shifts have been driving behavior on how the financial institutions are, are reacting and reinforcing their, their controls, right? So in this case here for authorized tax, right, what, what was interesting, was that, and I saw that firsthand was in the beginning, in case of an authorized attack, the sending financial institution was reimbursing consumers, not because they were forced to, but because there was so much pressure from consumers because there was so much of that happening that basically people started talking about these issues in social media, et cetera, and the banks uh, started to, to reimburse them. What happened after was that the central bank published that they were going to change the policy and they would shift liability towards the receiving FI. And suddenly, our team starts receiving calls, hey, how can you help me detect new accounts, right? Uh, So it wasn't a problem, like it it, it was a problem, but it wasn't uh, something that they were prioritizing at the moment until the central bank published that new resolution for this update on the policy. Right. So it's really interesting to see what's going on in different markets, because then you can predict where the FIs are going to prioritize their efforts in, in terms of building their stack. Right. So, for example, in this case, detecting new accounts became the top priority uh, when that shifted. Another thing that happened in Brazil was when Pix was launched, basically what happened was everybody's smartphone became, has become a, a wallet. But differently than the traditional concept we have for wallet, right? There was basically all the funds that the person had access to were available on that device, right? So that device actually has become extremely valuable. And what started happening was street criminals started targeting people that were actively using their smartphones. So the phone was unlocked and they were basically like riding a bike Stealing that phone, going to somewhere near, and, and basically making a PIX transaction, moving all the money that was available on that device, right? Why was that? Because, for example, many of the FIs in the beginning were relying on things like 2FA based on SMS, right? If you have the phone to that same device, right? So you be able to log into the account and then transfer the funds right there with that device. with And everything looked fine because it was actually the same device that that user always used, et cetera. So uh, dealing with that was, was quite challenging. When the liability shifted and the receiving end became responsible, things started moving in, in, in the right direction and people started investing in the right things. So in the next slide, when it comes to the unauthorized attacks, this one is more straightforward, right? In this case, the Fi from the, the consumers uh, Fi is reimbursing them, so pretty much the same process we we've seen since this this exists. And then on the next slide, I think we get back to you, Julie.
2: Yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll start talking about some of the solutions set from here on out. So not just the the doom and gloom, but you know as we look at you know how institutions are fighting these vectors. Yeah, you know, we've seen real detection investments rise significantly since the pandemic and, and I think if you're going to find a, a silver lining in a pandemic then then this is one good silver lining because you know we've been looking for a way to make a business case for mule detection for years you know typically it's, it's been challenging because the party that is detecting the mule activity is not the the bank that's taking the losses it's the bank upstream and it's the incoming bank that has the mules on its books but with all of the stimulus fraud that we saw, with massive increases in the population of mules, the concern over regulatory activity, again, the, the, the training of would be mules on things like YouTube, the active recruitment of mules. You know, there's a couple of, of stats in the sidebar that I'm not going to read through. These are from a, a Lloyd's survey of UK consumers about just the extent to which consumers have at least no... Vocal acknowledgement of doing things like being asked to move money through your bank account in exchange for a cut of the proceeds is something bad. Yeah, so this you know it all points to this ballooning mule problem that we're now actively doing something about. So we did a survey where we looked at the extent to which FIs are increasing their investment in mule detection. And the great news here is that we saw that 64% of those that we surveyed are doing so. If we look at the next survey, and I'm going to move through these pretty quickly, just in the interest of time, we've got a lot of great content and dwindling time. You know, I think on the unauthorized payment detection side, even though it's a more mature attack vector, we still see that, you know, a number of institutions are, see a lot of room for improvement. You know, as we asked about the, the confidence in their unauthorized or ATO control framework, only 43% of the FIs that we surveyed really felt like they had had things in, in a pretty good shape. As we go to the next slide, you know, we'll see that uh, you know, the, the good news is you look at real-time payments and the, the evolution of the control framework, we, we do see that active change is coming. So again, in the survey that we just closed out at the end of last month, you know, as we asked institutions how likely they are to make major changes, not minor tweaks, to their their real-time payment control framework in the next year or two. As you can see here, two thirds of those institutions that we surveyed are likely to do so, which I think is just fantastic news. Going to the next slide. Yeah, especially in the ATO ecosystem where we've been fighting this battle at an industrialized scale for 15 years. Yeah, the the ATO ecosystem is, is much more mature than scams, but I do think that there's still considerable room for growth and evolution yeah, as we asked about a whole variety of of control factors that FIs are using, and I, I think you guys will all be able to get these slides after, so I'm not going to go through all of this this eye chart. But if you look like at just that bright green on the right side, those are controls that institutions, yeah, a good chunk of institutions don't even have deployed yet. So I think yeah, the good news is even though there's still not 100% confidence in among many FIs and their capability sets for ATL, there's a lot of tools at people's disposal that can help very effectively address it. David, if we go to the next slide here. know, yeah, I think uh, the, the good news is authentication is getting a lot of focus as we look at those areas of transformation. So as we ask financial institutions about where they are prioritizing their bets and their spend, digital identity authentication controls are leading the way I will say this is a survey that we have done every year for the past six years, and authentication is in the top two every single year, which speaks to both the opportunities for improvements as we're looking at getting tired controls like KBA, which you know, fortunately, that one's almost dead, but you know, ubiquitous things like SMS OTP that are that are highly compromised. You know, working those things out of this out of the system and replacing them with things that not only are more effective from a security perspective, but also can provide a better customer experience, which, which really is the, the win-win. David, or Andre, Lenny, anything to add to that before we dive into this slide?
3: I would say what strikes me, and it's been striking me for quite a bit, and Julie, it comes so clearly as you're uh, and talking through the slides, is how we're at a point uh, as a result of all the transformation with real-time payments where every financial institution has to look at across so many different aspects of their, dom- their domain and really get to a level of maturity and professionalism, not just in your account takeover, not only in your scams and kind of authorized fraud activity, not only in your mule account monitoring but all of those together and across multiple touch points with their uh, both consumers, small businesses, um, business banking. And so we're, it's, we're really at a point where the level of kind of maturation and kind of professionalizing of kind of the, where we've been plugging a number of holes, but with faster payments, um every single financial institution is in a position where they really need to look at how do they holistically invest across these different attack vectors uh, in a way that continues to provide a reasonable experience and manages their their liability and losses at the same time it's a lot of challenges all at once
2: yeah and you know you and i were talking about this just earlier last week and doing all that and at the same time trying to provide a good and holistically uniform customer experience yeah it's it's a pretty tall order. It's, it's, a- it's not easy to do.
3: It's a tall order and it's clear why authentication keeps popping up at at the top because as much a question of how do you continue to give people a reasonable experience in the digital as, as we've gone through digital transformation and as things continue to become more and more digital and how consumers interact, how do you give them a reasonable experience? One that's consistent, one that's easy, one that's safe and across all of these different channels. So whether you're trying to fight ATO or not, you're still gonna continue to make investments across your authentication identity landscape.
2: Yep, absolutely. David, if we can move over, and that's that's a great segue into just the business case as to, you know, as, You are having to make the business case, and unfortunately, we still have to make business cases, whereas the bad guys just innovate, and that's why this continues to be that lopsided chess game where they're getting like three moves for every one we get at this point. When we ask financial institutions, as they are driving change in their real-time payment rail control ecosystem, um, as they are making investments in their fraud control framework, what are the key elements of the business case? And I thought this was kind of interesting because we ask this question a lot as we're doing our various surveys, evolution of fraud controls here at Datos. Typically, as we ask this question, customer experience is almost always at the top and usually closely followed by fraud losses. And, you know, it's it's only 10 points behind in this one, but I did think it was interesting that we're, we're feeling enough pain, both on the authorized and the unauthorized side of faster payment rails, that as you ask executives about what is their primary driver of these business cases it right now it is those fraud losses that has that top slot Andre, i know you talk to a lot of financial institutions a lot of you know, neo banks cryptos you know are you hearing something similar on this front
1: absolutely if we observe like the the sales cycle depending on the business case it is completely different right so our solution addresses both The client experience, so it helps our customers like provide a a frictionless authentication experience, et cetera, but it also helps reduce fraud losses. And when the problem is fraud loss, the sales cycle on our end tends to be at least half the time when compared to, to client experience, right? Why is that? Well, basically, the FI is losing money. And more than that, they're seeing the problem scaling. Right, because if they don't fix it quickly, they become a bigger target. Fraudsters collaborate a lot, right? So they communicate. Hey, that that FI has this vulnerability. Let's attack them. So if they don't fix it quickly, uh, it, it could become a much bigger problem. So for sure, we see that when fraud losses is the primary driver for the business case on adopting a new technology, it becomes a top priority more more quickly.
2: Absolutely. I know we've got some questions coming in. I want to make sure we leave time for this. Let's move on to the next slide here. Yeah, so we at Datos run a impact award every year where we invite uh, solution providers to submit kind of the, the new innovations they've released over the last couple of years. We require that they be in production, that they have metrics that demonstrate the effectiveness of the solution both from a detection as well as a performance, as well as from a client experience perspective. And literally, we get multiple dozens of submissions to this. The uh, The judging panel, is it's truly an industry award. So we've got a couple of judges internal to Datos that are on this, but we recruit a number of financial institution executives. They outnumber us three to one on the judging panel. And I'm pleased to say that Incadim got our winner of best digital identity verification innovation this year. As you know, look at some of the, the judges' comments as, as to why they were selected this among, among the many submissions we got, it really was you know, some of the client testimonials that we got. And this is a direct quote from one of the clients about the, the ability of the Incognito solution to lower false positives, reduce identity fraud, uh, specific to in this case, it was a, it was a new account creation as well as an ATO use case, and it was the ability to do this with you know without invoking PII and having to go through some of those hurdles in the business case process, and and at the same time being pretty much passive and behind the scenes from a customer experience perspective. So congratulations to Incognia and yeah, Andre I don't know if you want to add anything before we jump into some of our key takeaways and then open it up for questions.
1: Thank you. Yeah, just like thanks for for that. Really, really excited to to see uh, the recognition and and yeah, I'd say um, the the approach we decided to take here was 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 actually very simple. We got back to the first principles and tried to understand like what is fun among multiple um, online interactions we have, and and we r- realized that um, there were basically two things in common for all of those, which was for every online interaction you will, and, and it doesn't matter the platform, it doesn't matter if we are like in a metaverse or on a mobile channel or on the browser, on a desktop, we will always do that from a device and from a physical location. So we decided to go very deep on understanding these two things, understanding which device is this and where is it. And by doing that really well, we found that we could create a, a more, let's say, universal solution for identity verification that would work across platforms and would, would fill some of the gaps that we have identified in, in the space, particularly when it comes to device fingerprinting. We we noticed that fraudsters have developed many techniques to evade detection using device fingerprinting, so we added this additional layer to, to fill those gaps. But very, very happy for the recognition. <laughs>
2: Absolutely, well, well deserved. And if anybody on the uh, the webinar wants to see the full write up of the uh, the Incognia Award and, and why they got it and the use cases, you know, you can reach out to the Incognia team, and they will be happy to provide you with a copy. So, David, let's jump into our key takeaways here. And uh, you know, <laughs> the, the scam problem is going to get worse before it gets better. Unfortunately, you know, we're we're unfortunately we're still kind of on on the climb. We are definitely not even close to the downhill yet from a solutioning perspective. The good news I do see though, is that with the the monetary incentive that some of these liability shifts are taking, I think we're seeing the the solution ecosystem accelerate probably faster than what we saw in the early 2010s as ATO became industrialized. And we saw substantial motivation for, for FIs to spend there. I think we are seeing a number of really interesting solutions come to market that can help with these challenges on real-time payment rails. Mule detection, I think it's you know, that's the place where, from a, an authorized payment fraud perspective, that's where the low-hanging fruit lies. Because I, it's, it's easier to detect the anomalous behavior associated with a mule account than it is to try to figure out the intent behind your genuine customer sending an outbound payment. And so that's where I, I think a lot of the solutioning we're seeing is today seeing success. And I think that's going to be some of our low hanging fruit from a, uh, a taking a bite out of this problem. You know, One of my, my colleagues has very aptly called it the scampocalypse. And I think better mule detection is our way to really prevent it from achieving that scampocalypse status. And, and Lenny pointed it out earlier, collaboration, both within FIs, across FIs, with the social media, the telecoms, that's going to be another key opportunity for us to to get ahead of that curve. Turn it over to to Lenny and Andre, and then I think Andre, we've got one more slide, and we're getting close. So maybe um, David, we just respond to questions by email after the fact.
3: Sounds great. I'll just respond to one, one of the questions as part of the kind of reaction to this to the slide and there was a there's a question in here around machine learning models and their effectiveness in uh, across these, uh, these 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 uh, attack vectors one of the things that I'm seeing a lot of financial institutions really focus on in investment right now is how do they get much more facility with building their own as well as acquiring machine learning models and having Having the kind of the technology stack that allows them to rapidly be able to deploy different types of machine learning models to address these problems. So specific models for mule detection, specific models for the sending side, specific models for the receiving side and the collaboration thereof. So I think we're they... Absolutely, a huge part of the equation, and I think a lot of a lot of investments that, from my perspective are being made in how do I get kind of facility with being able to rapidly or as rapidly as I can both be able to deploy them and take advantage of them across, and different kinds of models across the all three problems that are on this side.
1: Yeah, and to to add to that on the machine learning front, like I'd say having high quality data is. The most important thing here, because if you don't have high-quality data, it doesn't matter how good your ML model is, uh, it won't perform. And in some cases, if you have access to very high-quality data that you know it's not tempered and provides like good granularity in terms of understanding who's that person, sometimes when you have, again, very high-quality data, rules sometimes perform better than machine learning models. So it, it all depends on the data. I would prioritize having access to the best data that you can and testing different models, testing rules as well. It's not one or the other. In many cases, you, you use a combination of rules and ML, uh, sometimes rules for the most straightforward cases, ML for like the gray zone. And But again, the, the top priority here should be the data.
2: Great, and uh, next slide, David, in one minute, Andre, for you to bring us home here.
1: All right. Um, well, so uh, one quick comment here on how location can, can help. One of the things we, we've seen in markets where uh, real-time payments has become widespread was the growth of the, the use of location as a signal for fraud prevention. For example, last year, we, we saw even Apple Pay starting to enforce the use of location for every user for fraud prevention purposes. And the same has been happening in other countries. For example, Mexico has recently passed a law in which every FI has to collect location from their users, et cetera. And wanted to comment here about some of the use cases, right? So first of all, location can help you bind the device to the identity on a continuous uh, fashion. So what's interesting about this is you can use that to detect new accounts very effectively, right? So. If one account was created, everything looks good. But suddenly, the address associated with that account no longer matches the behavior of the device that is uh, accessing that account. It is most likely to be a mu account, right? Either the user has moved and didn't notify the, the FI, or that's that's a new account. Second thing, which is interesting, is that we we see in our network that over ninety-five percent of the real time transactions occur from places where the user goes very frequently, like your home, your office, et cetera. So understanding that can help you both provide a frictionless experience to the good users, but also detect suspicious activity more, more effectively with real-time information. Right. So basically those those are just two examples here of of how location has been used by by FIs and and i believe that's that's probably going to be one of the new areas of investment for the fis of, as we move into this space.
0: Hey, David here again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Trust and Safety Mavericks. Subscribe to our show to be notified about every new episode. While you're at it, follow our CEO Andre Faraz on LinkedIn, where he regularly posts insightful thought leadership.